0: Again, if you missed the first introduction, my name is Sean. Privileged to um, be one of the pastors here on staff. Um, If you are here uh, for the first time, welcome. We're glad that you are here. I don't know how, if this is true in your your life. Um, I know it's certainly true in mine that um, I have two um, older... I wasn't going to say this, but I guess I am. Here, here I go. Um, I have two older kids and uh, both grew up in the church, but uh, both really are struggling with faith. You know, they have a lot of questions and um, a lot of reasons why... Um, They're not walking with the Lord or walking faithfully or attending church. And I don't know if that's true for your family members and mine. And so I think we're we're living in a culture where a lot of people are just uh, questioning faith. They've had a lot of issues uh, with faith and have walked away from faith or walked away from the church. and so I don't know where everyone is here tonight. I, I hopefully, uh, you know, I know some of you, most of you that I know you guys are um, faithful um, believers, but, you know, I don't know everyone. And so maybe you're you're like that. You're someone who uh, maybe walked away from faith or, you know, still has a lot of questions about the whole church thing and uh, Jesus. And my hope tonight is that um, I'm going to give you some reasons to reconsider Jesus and uh, specifically kind of the person of Jesus, not the church, not the people of Jesus, because sometimes uh, we mess up, uh, but but the person of Jesus. And uh, if you are a person of faith and you have people in your life that maybe are questioning, maybe some of the things you'll hear tonight might help you uh, just as you begin to share uh, the message of Jesus and what he has done in the world. And so uh, one of the things we've been talking about uh, in this series, uh, kind of the big idea is that Jesus... Um, when he showed up into the world, he um, he came to do something brand new in the world and for the world. It was a world thing, and uh, and he didn't come to. Uh uh, just to continue something, but he actually came to replace something. He came to do something brand new, and uh, he wasn't a continuation of, of an old religion. It wasn't a continuation of Judaism. It wasn't like Judaism point two-oh. Um, he came uh, not just to preach, you know, great sermons and give us wise teaching, but he actually came to do something brand new. He, he came to not to continue something, but to replace something, to do something that had never been done before, and and so uh, um, regardless of how maybe skeptical you are or your friends are, or your fa- family members are, um, regardless of the objections sometimes people have to, to the Bible and the scriptures and the story of Jesus, um, there are some things that are just undisputable some things that, that are verifiable. You can kind of Google the stuff. I'm going to sh- share some stuff with you. Uh, these are verifiable realities um, uh, that, that you can kind of fact check. And, uh, and what I love about, and I've always loved about the Christian faith, it's a, a, f- a faith that is rooted in history. It's rooted in events that, that occurred in real places, geographical places that you can still visit today. And it affected real people who lived in time and space. Uh, it's not just kind of this theology or th- you know philosophy that we're pulling Out of the ether world, it's because of these events, these things that have happened uh, that we believe, that we have evidence to believe. And so here's what's indisputable um, is that a small group of Jewish nobodies um, who were following a Galilean carpenter, uh, a group who had absolutely no political power, military power, or even religious power, um, you know, a group that never even had a sacred text at the very beginning. Um, A small group of of these these Galileans, uh, you know, fishermen, political rejects. They were just a hodgepodge of guys, nobodies. Um, They had the audacity to claim um, that um, because of the sacrifice of their leader, this Jewish carpenter named Jesus, um, all the sins of the world um, had the potential of being forgiven by simply trusting and believing in him. Like the final sacrifice for sin had been made. It was done. Now, you know, in the 21st century, we, you know, we don't like to talk about sin, let alone sacrifice for sin. Um, but in in that first century culture in which all of this happened, um, every world religion, every predominant world religion at the time, Roman religion, Greek religion, Egyptian religion, Jewish religion, they understood sacrifice for sin. They had a means by which sin was atoned for, sin was dealt with. And, and so... Uh, this was kind of flying in the face of every current world religion at that time. And so, you know, the Romans, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Jews would go like, you know, you know who died and put you guys in charge? And, and uh, Peter, James, John, they would go like, actually, glad you asked, because uh, we know who died and put us in charge. His name is Jesus. Do you want to meet him? And, and, th- and so these, this group of, of, of nobodies, these the, these uneducated, um, you know, just, just normal blue-collar working people, a regular hodgepodge of nobodies, uh, literally turned the world upside down. Uh, and here's what's undisputable. This is, you know, fact-check this. In about 350 years later, um, the Roman emperor um, the- Theodos I, um, in, in the, the Edict of Thessalonica, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which was pretty much the entire known world at the time. So so the same empire that had crucified this Galilean carpenter, 350 years later, makes Christianity, the worship of this carpenter as God, the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. I mean, yeah, wow. It's like... No one would have believed that, right? If you had spoken to John, remember we got introduced to John the Baptist right at the beginning of the series, the guy who pointed to Jesus and said, look, you know, behold, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. If you had told him, John, 350 years from now, Christianity, the the worship of this man Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be the, the sole religion of the entire Roman Empire. Pagan worship will be outlawed. John would be like, you're kidding me. No way. If you had told Peter and James and John, the guys we were introduced last week, you know, that, that pagan temples would be destroyed and repurposed uh, for, the, for Christian worship, they would have been like, no way. No way. It would have been unbelievable. And if it wasn't historical fact, honestly, I wouldn't believe it either, right? But fact check it. I mean, it's crazy. It's unbelievable. It's undisputable. Um, and, And so here we have this group of nobodies who literally changed the course of human history because they refused to stop talking about what they had seen and heard. Events rooted in history. They had seen it with their eyes. They had heard the teachings of Jesus. They had seen a man who was once dead, crucified on a Roman cross, buried in a tomb. And then three days later rise to life again. And and they were like, they would not stop talking about it. And and the temple rulers, the, the Jewish rulers of the day, they tried their best to shut them up. They threatened to imprison them and beat them. But they refused to shut up. The Roman Empire, the entire weight of the Roman Empire and all its brutality and cruelty was pushed down upon those early Christians, but they refused to stop talking about this man who was crucified, buried, and rose again to life. And 350 years later, this story of this Galilean carpenter, this message of the gospel and all that the message and teaching that entailed eventually became the religion of the known world. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable if you think about the roots and how it began. It truly is unbelievable. So, I get ahead of myself. Let me be backful, you guys where, where we've been so far in this uh, series. Um, it all started um, in, in week one. We talked about when Jesus kind of steps onto the pages of human history as an adult. And he shows up in the middle of the Jordan Basin, a desolate area. John the Baptist is there baptizing people, preaching this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin and baptizing people. And he sees Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is baptized in, the ma- in that moment, identifying with this new thing that God was about to do. Immediately, we're told that Jesus is led by the Spirit off into the wilderness. And pa- Pastor Kuiper shared a great message about what occurred in the wilderness. And then he emerges out of the wilderness. Uh, he is fully committed to the path of God's kingdom. He's going to leverage all his wealth, power, and influence for those who are powerless, for those who have no voice, for the poor and the marginalized in this world. It's that upside down kingdom value at work in the life of Jesus. And, and we're told in Luke's gospel in chapter 4 that news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was preaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And the reason they praised him, because he was an incredible teacher. He taught with authority. Um, they believed he was a prophet, man who actually heard from God and spoke God's word. They, they believed that he was the, kind of the latest greatest crave of of rabbis. He was kind of the new big thing in town. And and he had a whole new spin and twist on how he taught the scriptures. And and so they praised him for it. And so even in that time, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, most people saw Jesus as simply an extension of ancient Judaism. He was just another rabbi uh, preaching the word of God. Um, And and so in fact, Luke tells us, um, they said this of Jesus, A great prophet has appeared amongst us, they said, and God has come to help his people. But Jesus was much more than a great prophet. And Jesus had a far broader agenda than simply reaching the Jewish nation. He had come to do something brand new in the world and for the world. Not just for for one nation, but for the world. And so... um, Literally what we see as the Gospels unfold, as the story unfolds, that Jesus uh, turns uh, over, if you will, turns upside down the religious status quo of his day, the religious system of his place, and he replaces it with something brand new. Um, and that created a lot of tension in Jesus' day. Um, and, and, and so even though Jesus' you know, was, was teaching was, kind of, was controversial and, and people were scratching their head, kind of like, but, you know, that's not kind of what we've been taught You're telling us something different? They followed him because he was healing with incredible compassion. He was teaching with incredible authority. He was demonstrating incredible power, not only over the natural world, but also the spiritual world. And so the crowds continued to follow him. And one of the greatest teachings that Jesus, one of his most famous teachings, is, is a teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been around church, you've probably heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew uh, captures uh, a great deal of it in chapters five and seven of his gospel. Um, but he, and well, here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount um, most scholars believe it wasn't just one sermon that took place at one place, uh, it was probably a copulation, a collection of all of Jesus, the content that, uh, of things that Jesus taught throughout his ministry. And so, kind of when Matthew compiled it, he put it together in one sermon. But this is content that Jesus would probably preach continuously throughout his ministry. He would repeat these things over and over again. And so, uh, it's a collection of the essential teachings of Jesus. And here's something that we often miss, because uh, we, when we read this sermon as, uh, you know, 21st century Christians, uh, and with all 2,000 years of uh, Christian cultural influence we miss just how controversial or kind of how contrary and how much tension the sermon would have raised in his first century Jewish audience. In fact, the content of this sermon represents a a worldview that was absolutely contrary to just about everything that Jewish men and women had been taught up until that time. Um, And so, um, what I would like to do is maybe just surface a little bit of that tension for us as, as we read through uh, some of the this, this sermon. So the sermon starts, some of you know it, uh, with the Beatitudes, the blesseds, right? He lists the number of blessings, and uh, he begins like this. He says, blessed are you who are poor. And just hearing that word poor, Jews would go like, since when are poor people blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for they, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, And again, this would have been contrary to everything a Jewish person would have been taught. You know, you were blessed if you were rich. Part of God's blessing and part of God's favor on your life is prosperity. And so regardless whether you're talking about material poverty or spiritual poverty, that was never a good thing. But this was good news to those who were poor, right? Because those who had been marginalized and left out of the kingdom of God, Jesus is now swinging wide the doors of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. And he would go on. Everything else that he begins to to teach in those beatitudes are are just so contrary to what they would would, would have understood. Blessed are those who mourn, for they would be comforted. For the meek shall inherit. The merciful will be shown mercy. And then the peacemakers, not the powerful, not the influential, but the peacemakers will be called children of God. Blessed, just says Jesus, are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And I imagine when Jesus said, blessed are the pure of heart, there would have been a murmur in the crowd. They're going like, well, what do you mean pure of heart? That's kind of an eternal thing. We've been taught, blessed are those who are ceremonial clean, who clean the outside, who go through, who do all the right ritual washings, who, who stay away from contaminated things, who don't go into Gentile houses and Gentile regions, who, who, who uh, physically and outwardly separate those, themselves from those things that are unclean. Those are the ones who are blessed. So what's this deal with your, your heart? And Jesus is like, man, things are changing. This is no longer about outward appearance. This is no longer about outward religious ritual. This is about the condition of your heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. And so, you know, Jesus, this entire sermon, as you read it, um, it, it's, again, hard for us, you know, 21st century Christians, 2,000 years of Christian cultural influence, to see just how contradictory this would have been to so much of what Jewish people would have known and understood. Their worldview was so different to what Jesus is teaching in this sermon, um, you know, he would go on to say uh, in, 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 in verses 13 and 14, speaking to his Jewish audience, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the Jews would have thought, well, no, what do you mean? We've been taught how to stay away from the world. You know, we're, you know we're, yes, I understand. We're, we're the light of the Jewish nation, and, and it's a light that we're going to keep within ourselves. Well, what do you mean we're the light of the world? We're supposed to be separate from the world. Distant from the world. The world is full of Gentiles and pagans and unbelievers. We don't want anything to do with the world. What do you mean we're going to be the light to the world? And then we go on to say this in, in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, who do you think the others was that he was talking about? It wasn't Jewish people. Like others, the Gentiles. Let, let your, what do you mean we've got to shine our light before the Gentiles? We don't want anything to do with Gentile people. And, and, and Jesus says, so that, right? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And again, from the Jewish mindset, we're like, we don't want them to glorify our Father in heaven. We want them to fear Him, to be terrified of Him. Just like they were in Jacob's day and, and Joshua. When Joshua came in, they were terrified. That's what we want. We, we want them to envy us like they did in Solomon's day when we had all the wealth and the power. We don't want them to glorify our Father in heaven. We want them to be terrified of Him and be envious of Him. But that's not what Jesus teaches. Let your good works shine before men so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. And so Jesus knew that they knew that what He was teaching was kind of new. This is not kind of what they had been taught. Um, in, in fact, You know, he'll go there on to passages of scriptures where um, he, he will start teaching them. And he'll say things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. There was this contrast, this tension. You've heard it said. And when he said, you heard it said, they knew exactly who he was referring to. He's referring to Moses and the prophets and the law and the teachers of the law. That's who had told them that. But I tell you. So Jesus is creating this tension, this conflict between that which was and that which was coming. Jesus is about to do something brand new. Now, so Jesus says something. He says this in verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? Now, let me just pause there for a minute. The law and the prophets that Jesus is referring to here is uh, what we would consider the Old Testament. Right? So, the first Two-thirds of your Bible, Uh, your English Bible, is the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Now, uh, Jewish people would never refer to it as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament because to them it's still a current covenant. It's still the current things. It wasn't until about 130 A.D. that Christians began referring to that as the Old Testament, as the Old Covenant. Um, But to Jewish people, um, it wasn't considered old because it was still current. That's kind of what they were living in. You know, in fact, to this day, Orthodox Jews, they will still refer to the Torah and the, the law and the prophets. That, that also, including the Psalms and, and all the poetry of the Old Testament, that's all considered the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the laws and the prophets. Now, why would he say don't think? Because that's exactly right. Because that's exactly what they were thinking. Because what he was teaching was so contrary to what they had been taught. So they're going like, what are you doing here? Are, are you setting yourself up against Moses? Because Moses is our guy, right? Moses is our man. Moses is the guy who we got the covenant from. He was on Mount Sinai. when We were all afraid. He went up the mountain and he saw God and God gave him the, the, the law and he's our guy. So are you setting yourself up against Moses? And, and, and so this tension, right, is real. You know, again, we miss it. We read through the, you know, the, the Beatitudes and we go like, aren't they beautiful? Aren't they so good and lovely? Blessed are the pure in heart, yeah. You know, but to a Jewish audience hearing that for the first time, they'd be like, what is he talking about? This is so contrary to what we've been taught. This is brand new. And so Jesus was coming to do something brand new. In the world and for the world. And he wasn't coming to continue something, he was coming to replace something. He was going to begin or inaugurate a new covenant, a new way of relating between God and man. And this was something that their own prophets had foretold. If they actually knew the scriptures well enough, they would recall the, the writings of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah says this the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Say new covenant. A new covenant. I'm going to do something brand new. I'm not going to continue something. I'm going to give you a brand new covenant. I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judea. I will, it will not be like the old covenant. In other words, it's going to be new. I will make, I will ma- that I made with the ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. And because they did not, I think he continues to say, they did not uh, obey that old covenant. And so God was going to do something brand new. This was foretold. And predicted by the prophets of Israel. And Jesus is basically saying, the time has come. The time has come. I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets as foretold. I've not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, truly I tell you, he says, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law. And then Jesus inserts a little preposition, right, that I think oftentimes we miss in, this, in, in the reading of this text. He says, none of this will disappear from the law until, until, and I imagine everyone at this point go like, leaning and go like, until what? Right? Until what? And he says, until everything is accomplished, until everything is finished, until everything is completed. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not here to end it, Right? Sorry, I'm, I'm not here to edit it. I'm not here to change it. I'm not here to add to it. I'm here to fulfill it. And when it is fulfilled, once that has been accomplished, I will replace it with something brand new. And again, for, for, again the, the tension this would have created for a Jewish mindset would have been just like they're going like, what are you talking about? I mean, like Moses, you're telling me you're you, you going to replace Moses the Mosaic law. I mean, what are you saying, Jesus? And, and so Jesus is pushing the, the, the boundary of what would have been totally acceptable. I mean, if you think, even, even the thought of, I, I don't know really how to say it, but if, if this message makes you uncomfortable <laughs> in any way to think like Jesus is changing stuff and, you know, he's challenging Moses and our Old Testament and because that's the Bible, Right? Uh, Can you imagine how uncomfortable it made his audience in the first century? In fact, this was the source of the greatest tension, source of the greatest tension Jesus had with the religious establishment today. They understood that what he was teaching was something brand new, was something something just unusual. It, It was about to turn over the status quo of their religious system, and it made them incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable. So Jesus doesn't come simply to continue something, he's come to replace something. You know, and, and this is what uh, the apostle, apostles, the later apostles, as they went into the Gentile world, would continue to remind people of, especially the apostle Paul. If you read the writings of Paul, uh, the letters of Paul, um, you will see that he was constantly making this point to the Gentile world. You know, in Galatians, for instance, Galatians is a great uh, reading. If you ever want to kind of do it, take, take a deeper dive into kind of what Paul was teaching in the, in the Gentile word in, in contrast to ancient Judaism, Galatians is a great book to read. But I'll read you a few passages from Galatians. Galatians 4, um, Paul says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born to a woman, born under the law, right? So Jesus was born under a law. And because he was born under the law, he was perfectly suited to fulfill it. In a sinless life, in a life without trespass or transgression against the law, he actually became a fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled all the ceremonial law, all the dietary law, every single uh, portion of that law, including, including the words of the prophets. Because all of the prophets, Jesus would say, all of that pointed to him. And so he was a complete fulfillment in every aspect, both the law, the ceremonial law, the religious law, the dietary law, all of that he fulfilled, including the words of the prophet. And the reason he was born under the law was to redeem those under the law that they might receive adoption to sonship. So Jesus born under the law in order to fulfill it, in order to complete it. And yes, the good news right, for all of us is that ultimately if you replace it with something so much better. So much better. So Jesus is is about to introduce a new covenant that was between God, not simply between God and a nation, but between God and all of mankind. And all of his teaching, all of his parables, all of his healing, all of his miracles were kind of foreshadowing of this new thing that God was about to do. And here's the crazy thing. This movement that was launched um, by this small band of, of kind of nobodies, At the beginning of the first century, um, when they began to launch out into the world, they had a very difficult time making a clean break from the old ways. I mean, if you read any of the the writings of of Paul or, or even of Peter, the struggle they had breaking free from the old into this new thing that Jesus was doing. You know, there was a constant pull and a drift to once again kind of subject themselves under that legalistic system of the Mosaic law. And so again, Paul would plead with the early church, Galatians again. He would say to them, it is for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. So stand firm. He he says, do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And he refers to the law of God at the time um, and and the, the, the religious structure that had become as a yoke of slavery. And Paul writing to Romans, it would be like, man, I'm not saying that the law was not good and did not have a purpose. But the very purpose of the law was to reveal my sin. And, and, and so don't once again burden yourself because Christ has set you free. Set you free from the judgment of the law. For those who are in Christ, there is no more condemnation. And so he, he releases us out of the burden of the law and sets us free to walk in the spirit. He would, go, he would say in, in verse um, 18 of chapter 5, if you're led by the spirit, you're no longer under the law. There was this whole new dispensation where once they were, the, the, the people of God were led by, by a writing on a stone tablet. But now they were led by the spirit of God who wrote the law of God upon their hearts. A brand new dispensation, a brand new way of of, of interacting and and relating to our Heavenly Father. But here's the thing. There will always be this powerful pull back into legalism, right? In fact, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why so many people kind of um, struggle uh, oftentimes um, with faith in the context of churches is because legalism tends to creep in. You know, this is why so many times people just are confused about the Christian message. Because on one hand, we're telling them, man, um, we talked about this last week. Like, you know, being a sinner is a prerequisite to following Jesus. And then people show up and they've got all kinds of sin issues. And now we're going like, yeah, but not in our church. Amen? Don't we do that? Is that weird? Because there's a drift. We want to go back to this kind of legalistic way of viewing people. And so legalism is, is kind of what, what a lot of the New Testament writing is about, trying to push against this reversion back unto this yoke of legalism, you know, and, and, and unfortunately it was an issue in the first century church, read the book of Galatians, it, it, it was a, it's been an issue throughout the history of the church, and unfortunately it's still an issue in our churches today, And so Jesus was constantly contrasting himself against that which the law uh, of Moses taught because it had been reverted to simply the letter of the law and this harsh legalistic approach to to a relationship with God as apart from a, a God who is compassionate and kind and truly loves people. And so one of the reasons, unfortunately, so many people I think sometimes drift from faith or sometimes will question their faith um, it's because they enter into churches that at one hand is saying on this message, man, uh, you have to be a sinner to get in, acknowledge that sin. And then you come into a church with sin issues, with all kinds of stuff in your life. And people look at you and you're like, yeah, no, you know, um, and, and I think this is what legalism does, right? Legalism. so let me just kind of press this down a little harder. We good. Yeah. Let me just press this down a little harder. Um, you know, what legalism does, it, it, it tends to, to elevate doctrine over people. And, and so what I would submit to you is that God does not, this might sound a little controversial, but just hear me out. God does not love his law more than he loves his people. All right? For instance, take, take Israel, because the law was given to Israel. Long before God gave Israel the law, he declared to Israel, you are my people. That you are my people and God delivers them sovereignly. He loves Israel, delivers them, rescues them. And then in the context of that relationship, he then gives them his law. And so the law never came before the people. It was people first and then the law. And what legalism tends to do, it tends to elevate our doctrine or the law over people. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Doctrine is incredibly important. What we believe is incredibly important. But the minute our doctrine becomes loveless and compassionate and, and so we use our doctrine then to dishonor people and to marginalize people and to neglect people or certain groups of people, we miss the heart of God. And, and, and this is what Jesus was pressing against. He was pressing against a religious system that, that had, had elevated uh, the law, if you will, or or legalism, if you will, above people. And that it will never, ever sit well with the Lord, right? He was constantly coming against those people who are religious, with that religious mindset, who dishonored people in in, in, in a way of elevating the law of God. And so Jesus would say things like the Sabbath, Right? The Sabbath is, 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 I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, God made the Sabbath for people, not the, not the Sabbath, not people for the Sabbath. And, and so legalism will constantly elevate doctrine over people. And, and the two things should not be mutually exclusive. Now, we shouldn't have to sacrifice one uh, for the other. Both of those things are important. But when we prioritize doctrine over people, we tend to drift towards legalism <laughs> And we lose the heart of God. And I'm afraid that we lose a lot of people in the process as well um, because of that. And so Jesus teaches us that ultimately, you know, we are all condemned under the law, right? And so lest we, you know, hold up the law too harshly, you know, allow it to be a mirror to your own heart. Because the purpose of the law was to reveal your own sinfulness. This is why God gave us the law. And ultimately, the law would lead us to our need for a Savior. And so when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, not only did I fulfill the requirements of the law, but I've actually come to become the solution to what the law reveals in your heart. I've become the solution for that sin issue that the law was created to reveal in your heart and my heart. And so... Jesus teaches us that ultimately we're all condemned under the law. Great example of that. Um, many of you might know the story. I'll just paraphrase it for you. Uh, Jesus is by, uh, brought a woman by the religious leaders of the day who is caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Right? Um, and they say, you know, the law of Moses says, stone her, kill her. And so they bring her to Jesus and they go like, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? They want to trap him. In this tension between the law and these things that, that he's teaching. This idea that people are actually more important than the law. And so what does Jesus do? The gospel writers say that he kind of leans down into the sand and he writes something. One of the great mysteries of the scripture. People have, have commented on that. What did he write? I don't know. Maybe he listed out all their sin. All the things they were doing. The woman they were sleeping with on the sly. Or the money they were stealing or embezzling. I don't know what he wrote. But ultimately, what he says to it, he says, um, I will not condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he doesn't condone her sin, but he offers her a third option, forgiveness, right? Neither does he. He doesn't condone and he doesn't condemn, but he forgives. And, and, and what Jesus teaches us ultimately, the whole story of Jesus, if it teaches us nothing else, it, it, is that, that his mercy, the mercy of God, the grace of God always trumps his judgment it triumphs over his judgment. All of us are condemned under the law. This is the purpose of the law in the first place, to show us the need for a savior. And Because of our gracious God, because of his kindness, because of his gentleness and his faithfulness to his people, he offers us a third option, that of forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, so a little bit of a, a tangent there. But, but this is the tension that Jesus kind of lived in. This is the tension that he created. And so he didn't come simply to continue that that, that religious process of Mosaic law, Judaism 2.0. He came to do something brand new. He came to give us a completely different way of relating to God, a brand new covenant. Um, And so the religious leaders were constantly coming to Jesus Read through your Gospels. And they go like, but the law says, but Moses says, but the law says, but Moses says. And Jesus would be like, yeah, but I tell you, but I tell you. One of the things that they would go like, you know, um, the temple, the temple for, for, for the Jewish people at that time was so, um, such a, a central part of their identity and their spirituality. It, it was kind of, it was the epicenter of religious worship, but not only of religious worship, of, of national identity. And so for for the Jewish mindset, like nothing was greater than the temple because the temple represented everything that Judaism was. It was a place where the the presence of God was said to dwell. It was a place where the law of God, the Torah was housed, the the tablets of stone in in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. It was the place. Nothing was greater than the temple. Except Jesus says of himself, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And honestly, again, twenty-first century Christians, we read that guy. Yeah, of course, Jesus is greater than the temple. We, can, we kind of. But to the first-century Jew, when Jesus said nothing, something is here that is greater than the temple. They would have been like, "Are you insane? Do you even know what you're saying? Either you are insane, or you're just arrogant, or you're ignorant. But whatever it is, that's blasphemy. Speaking against the testament, to the temple is tantamount to speaking against God. Nothing. Is greater than the temple, and yet Jesus says, "I tell you that something greater than the temple is here." Now, again, just to, let me set, set the context. For like this, this, idea of the, what the temple meant to the Jews. About seven years after Jesus said this, um, in around about 40 AD, um, the Emperor Caligula. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's kind of he was a, just a, a crazy man, Roman Roman. He was a little insane. Um, um, but he had a statue, a golden statue of himself built in Rome, shipped to Judea um, t- with the instructions um, to have it erected in the temple courts. It was his way of saying, God is not sovereign, I'm sovereign. I am literally, it, it, this is, was Caligula's way of imposing his divinity upon the Jewish people. The Jewish people got word of the plot. In fact, back, back up a little bit. He had given this man, who was the governor of, Syri- uh, of Syria at the time, uh, Petronius, uh, orders to go pick up the, 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 um, the statue at the port city uh, just opposite Caesarea, and then bring it to Jerusalem. But word of that got out to the Jews, and they thousands upon thousands of them met Petronius at the port city. And, and he was thinking a riot's going to break out. There's going to be like I'm going to have to call in the legions. I'm going to just this is going to be a genocide. Um, but instead of fighting um, the, the the Roman legions, the thousands upon thousands of Jews went to their knees. They pulled back their tunics and offered their necks to the Roman blades, saying, "We would rather die than have that statue desecrate our temple." Just to understand the context of like how sacred the temple was to the Jewish mindset, and Jesus says. Something greater than the temple is here. I mean, that's the context in which Jesus that This would have been mind-blowing to them. So, like, nothing was more impressive. Nothing was more sacred. Nothing was more kind of like it was the law of God and it was the temple. Those two things, man, they they were just kind of the sacrament uh, to, to to the Jewish nation. It represented their spiritual identity as well as their national identity. And that wasn't the first time that Jesus would have a commentary on the temple. Um, in fact, um, Luke tells us there was an occasion where Jesus is, um, he had been in the temple courts. And the disciples, these guys are leaving. Um, they're going down to the Mount of Olives. And you'd have to go out the south entrance up the, uh, through the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. And as they're exiting the temple, a couple of these guys look back um, and um, they, they are just so impressed with, with, the, with Herod's temple because it was literally, it was, a, it was a marvel, architectural marvel. Herod, about 20 years prior to the birth of Jesus, had, um, in, in order to seek favor with the Jews, um, had offered to renovate the temple. And he had spent, I don't know, the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars renovating, having these incredibly large, big blocks of stone cut out of the mountainside, hauled up onto the temple mount and erected. It was an architectural marvel. Um, And and so the, the disciples are leaving the temple courts, and they are just marveling at just how magnificent the building is. And Luke 21 verse 5 says, Some of the disciples are remarking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones uh, and with gifts dedicated to God. And and so they're wondering, like everyone was wondering, how on earth did they even build this thing? I mean, this is incredible. Like these stones are so huge. They're massive. How on earth did they get them up on the mountain? How do they cut those stones? And so they're just in awe of, of, of the magnificence of the temple, of the physical building of the temple. And then Jesus turns to them, and he says this, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And, And that phrase he uses there, thrown down, it's not fall down. It's not like it will decay over time and crumble. It's literally thrown down. It means it will literally be picked up and thrown down. And, and, and so the disciples are just going, like, there's no way. There's no way. That whole region, if you know anything about that region around, it's prone to earthquakes. And so, you know, uh, earthquakes will shatter and rattle. But these stones were so big, like, Herod built an earthquake proof temple. I mean, th- these stones were so large, they were so impressive. They're going, like, maybe the earthquake will crack a floor or something. There's no way they're going to be picked up and thrown down. There was only one force. On the planet at the time that had the power to pick up and throw down, throw down stones that size, and that was the Roman legions. And that's exactly what happened. And so in 70 AD, um, that's exactly what happened. What happened in the history of the legion, uh, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Jewish, the Jewish had been kind of pushing against the occupation of the Romans for, for years. And eventually, they had actually won one or two, won, won or two like big battles. And so, that emboldened them. And so, they kind of, what, what, what began as skirmishes kind of turned into this full-blown revolt against the Roman occupation. But Rome wouldn't have anything. So, they sent the 10th Legion under General Vespasian, one of the most brutal and, and brilliant generals, Roman generals of the time. And he comes into Judea with, with the 10th legion. And he ends up driving uh, all the, 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 the Jewish rebels out uh, from the northern areas of Galilee. And they all migrate down into the city of Jerusalem. They take refuge in the city of Jerusalem because it's a, fort- a walled city. And so they can defend it. Um, but what Vespasian does, he, he builds siege walls around the city. Eventually Vespasian is called back to Rome where he becomes emperor and his son Titus uh, takes over. And Titus is eager to impress uh, the, the, the generals of Rome. And so he just, he just presses hard against the Jewish people. And uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, he says the conditions in the city were horrific. There was incredible famine. In fact, there was even, even cannibalism that was occurring that the people were fighting and killing themselves just for scraps of food and then eating the dead bodies. It was horrific. Do you know how Jesus described it? Jesus said this, he says, when you see Jerusalem and surrounded by armies, you will know that the desolation is near. Then let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city for this is the time of punishment in the fulfillment of all. And I imagine as Jesus said this, his heart was breaking continues and this is how dreadful it will be for those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers there will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people and they will fall by the sword and they will later be taken in prisoners to all the nations Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled I mean this is unbelievable because on August 6, 70 AD Ancient Judaism and the covenant relationship that God had set with them with all the protocols for worship and temple worship ceased to exist. 2,000 odd years later, it's never been restored. The temple was absolutely destroyed by the Roman legions. They were so infuriated at the defiance of the Jews. They set the city ablaze, including the temple. And then after the fires had been quenched, they literally took... Stone by stone, the temple apart. And they threw them off the temple mount, off the placer, into the valley below. In fact, today you can actually go and see those stones on the south edge of of the temple mount. Every single one of these stones, not one will be left upon another. They will all be thrown down. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so into that void of ancient Judaism, rabbinic Judaism emerged. But, but ancient Judaism at that time ended. Jesus was not coming to continue something. He was coming to do something brand new. He was coming not to replace the Mosaic law, sorry, to, uh, not simply to fulfill the Mosaic law, but to replace it with something so much better, a dispensation of grace into the time of the Gentiles in which you and I now live. I mean, this is a powerful story, right? It's a powerful story. And you can fact check it, right? This is what I love about Christianity. It's, it's a story that is rooted in history. You know, um, Jesus' prediction about the nature of the temple and what would happen to the temple is attested to by history. Um, and so he didn't simply come to continue an ancient religion, but he came to do something brand new. Um, you know, and so, Jesus reaffirms this, right? This, this understanding of this new thing that he's doing. Um, his farewell address, right? After his resurrection, he's on a hill. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he's like, okay, guys, last words, all right? Here it is. You guys ready for this? This is the last, you know, eye to eye. We're going to have a conversation. I'm going to say some things to you. These are really important. And he says this. He says, all authority has been given to me. And again, to the Jewish mindset, they go, like, all authority has been given to you, Jesus. What about Moses? What about Moses? Like, what about Moses, the lawgiver, the covenant maker? No, all authority has been given to me. And I guess if you've seen a guy who was dead and buried and then rise again, you're going to like, okay, I guess you got all authority. And so he says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of Jewish people? No, of all nations. In other words, Jesus is saying the time has come, right, for you to cross your borders, all right? I know you've been taught all your life that the Gentiles are, are, are despised by God and separated from God, but I'm doing a brand new thing. I want you to go now, go, and make disciples of all nations. I want you to go into the Gentile world, into these pagan communities, and I want you to tell them my message. And here's what I want you to do, right? I want you to teach them I want you to teach them to obey everything that Moses taught you. It's not what he said, is it? No. I want you to teach him everything that I have taught you. Which raises the question, what did Jesus teach us? Oh, you're going to have to come back because we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. All right. All right. So let me, let me just kind of close here with this. Right. Um, this was the beginning of a brand new era. A brand new dispensation. Ancient Judaism basically came to an abrupt stop in 70 AD. It has never been resurrected as they knew it back then. There has been no temple worship. And if there's no temple worship, you know what else is not? Sacrifice for sin. You know why? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the Jewish nation, but of the world. Jesus was doing something brand new, something absolutely new and marvelous and wonderful. And it wasn't just for one nation, it was for the world. And you and I get to celebrate that. Tonight we get to celebrate that. Tonight we get to take communion together um, as a community of faith. You know, that message eventually came to us, right? Here we are 2,000 years later in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on the side of a volcano literally at the other end of the earth, and we are celebrating a Galilean carpenter who was crucified, not for the sins of a nation, but for the sins of the world. And through his death and through his resurrection, we have a new covenant. And so one of the things that Jesus taught us to remind us of that were the elements of communion. Um, Two simple elements, bread and a cup. The bread represents a body given, a sacrifice made, a lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. The cup represents a new covenant, Jesus said, in my blood. Whenever you do it, you're proclaiming my death until I return. The last thing Jesus said, he said, behold, I will not forsake you. I will be with you till the end of the age. And that reality is evident in the indwelling presence of His Spirit in us, in every believer, in every born-again believer. We'll talk about what it means to be born again next week, one of the things that Jesus taught us. And so if you are a born-again believer, if you are a new covenant believer, um, come celebrate communion. Come take the cup, take the bread, and remember this new thing that God is doing. That's not just for you, though, it's for the world, right? And you in the, in the tradition of the, 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 uh, the apostles following that command to go therefore and make disciples. You too have friends and family members. Many of them have walked away from church because of legalism, because we've tried to implement that which is old into the new thing. Um, and so uh, we, have a, we, have a, we have a responsibility to, to represent Jesus well to understand that when he brought his teaching into a world, into a religious, harsh environment of legalism and religious ritual, people pressed against it. But he came to do something brand new, something new, to offer us grace and mercy and forgiveness, not condemnation. So we'll celebrate communion together. And then let me just say this finally, for those of you who perhaps are here tonight and you're not a believer. Uh, maybe um, someone dragged you here or you just kinda had some questions. Um, allow these tables to be a means of grace, of grace to you. They're an invitation. You know, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary. Yes, all of you who have got sin. My commitment to you, at least as one of the leaders here, I can't speak for everyone here, but I pretty much know the culture of this church. We will love you despite your behavior. We want to know you to know that you belong that you are loved, you are valued. We're committed to teach you what Jesus taught us and is teaching us. And in believing correctly, we believe that behavior then will follow, we'll begin to behave in a way that honors God and honors people and honors ourselves. Um, and so that's our commitment here. But if you sense the Spirit of God drawing you tonight, um, come to the tables, partake in the, in the bread, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, given for the forgiveness of sin. Come partake in the cup, the new covenant, the promise of his spirit being poured out upon you. If you do that for the first time tonight, please don't leave without telling me. I'd love to just walk with you and talk with you and uh, kind of journey with you as you grow in knowledge of who Jesus is. Amen. I'm gonna pray and invite Travis and the team back up and then we will get to worship our way out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for, um, just for your goodness, Jesus, man. I'm just amazed at the courage it took for you to step up in the midst of a system that was so rigid and so legalistic and in so many ways compassionateless and loveless. And yet you stood boldly in the midst of that um, and you presented a different way. You declared that not Moses, not the prophets but I am the way, you said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And you have presented us a way to to commune once again with God, represented here by the elements of communion, a body given, sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin, a sinless lamb willingly led to the slaughter so that we might have life And you have written a new covenant in your blood. You have poured out your spirit. Your spirit now indwells us in faith and by faith and through faith so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. It is your power at work within us. And so we bless you, we honor you, and we worship you. Continue to reveal. Your truth to us, continue to reveal yourself to us, continue to lead us by the power of your spirit so that we can be instruments in your hands. We bless you, Jesus. Amen.